Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 in the Black Bibles around you can be found on page 61. And in just a moment, for the final time of this series of messages, 12 messages, I'm going to read to you all 10 commandments from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And we're going to look at verse 17, the last and final commandment, you shall not covet. Before I read, I want to give some final takeaways from this sermon series. For most of you, you've been through many of them. Some of you, if you're just visiting today, then you've not been with us. So here's the big idea. Christianity, from beginning to end, Old and New Testament, is not primarily about rule-keeping. That's a huge takeaway. So why not dive into the very rules themselves that have been throughout the ages, thousands of years, upheld as the summary standard of what God requires of human beings, his people Israel, and then repeated again in the New Testament. Jesus himself says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so as we look at the whole Bible, the Bible tells us not just laws and commands to obey for the sake of our salvation, for God to be pleased with us. The reason we've looked at these passages of Scripture is to tell you again and again that the Bible is telling you a story, not laws. If you were to break the Bible up, which genre is most prominent? Is it lists of laws? Is that what the Bible primarily is? Would you be surprised if I told you that the majority of the Bible is narrative and poetry? Like by far, 60-70% of the Bible is a story in narrative form and poetry. And the best way to read the Ten Commandments is to read them in the context of their story. They're not isolated. The Pentateuch, the first five books, the law of Moses, when we see the law as we open up Galatians in the coming weeks and start studying the book of Galatians, when we hear the word, the law, summarizing the first five books of the Bible, you should primarily be thinking narrative and not laws. The first five books is a story. It's a story about what God's people did with those laws and how because of the sin in their hearts and lives, they were unable to obey them. There was nothing wrong with the laws. The laws were holy and good and righteous. But sinners, they get their hands on these laws, continue to disobey them again and again and again. And so the Old Testament leaves us with this cliffhanging, what's God going to do? The law's not working. It's good, but the people are bad. And the story ends with God saying, I'm going to change their hearts. That's what we've been going over week after week after week. God, the gracious God, has redeemed and rescued a people, and then after already saving them, gives them his law and tells them, I want you to be a distinct, set-apart people. But time and time again, they're not distinct. They don't obey God's law. They don't keep the Sabbath. They worship idols. In fact, the way this story is told is that every time the story breaks with laws, there's another story about how they broke the very laws that God just gave them. So the next narrative part after the Ten Commandments and 
all the ordinate laws and judgments that you find is them committing idolatry and worshiping another god. So that's the big takeaway. There's one big takeaway for why we did this sermon series. It was to hopefully teach you that the Old and New Testament are telling us a story and that these Ten Commandments are an important part of that story, but they are not what Christianity or even the Jewish faith were ever all about. And so let us dive in one more time and then recount the story is what we're going to do this morning and see how coveting is another thread that tells us this story through Scripture. So follow along as I read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So this morning I have two categories, two points, if you want to put it that way, in the outline. The first one is going to take up, I'd say, 75% of my comments this morning. So if you're thinking, that's a long first point. It's basically the only point. And the second one will be the conclusion, if you want to put it that way. So first, I want us to consider... The story of coveting that leads to a curse. And then I want us to conclude by looking at the story of Jesus that gives us the cure. So the story of coveting. This is really the story of Scripture. It begins with coveting. Where's the first place the verb covet appears in the Bible? little Bible trivia time. When you don't know the answer, it's always good to guess the first three pages. And so it is with this question. When does coveting first appear in the Bible? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. So back to page 2. In Genesis chapter 2, Verses 5 through 9, we see the first time the verb, covet, in the Hebrew language is given to us. Let me read to you. 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field was yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the garden, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you hear it? The verb to covet. I didn't. So if you're wondering, yeah, I don't know. It's right there in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is desirable. It is covetable to the sight and good for food. That's the first time we see the Hebrew word covet in the Bible. Here's the interesting thing. The story of the Bible begins by telling us that our desires for good things are good. It is okay to have desires inside and desire good things. Things that God has made for you and for all of us in the world. God made this world good and he put humans in it for them to desire the good things that he gives them. That's okay. If any of you know anything about Buddhism, this is extremely different from Buddhism. Buddhism says that desire is the root of all evil. Suffering exists because desire exists. If you don't crave riches, then poverty will not be painful, Buddha might say. See the solution? Get rid of the desire for riches. Then whether you're rich or you're poor, you won't suffer. If you don't desire comfort, then when you're not comfortable, that won't be so bad. The solution in Buddhism is not to satisfy your desires, to extinguish your desires. And the enlightened Buddhist will have all their desires put away. Do you see how different the story of the Bible is? Right from the start, you are told that there is a good kind of coveting. There's a good kind of desiring after the trees of the garden that God made. But there's this one tree. There's this one tree that you're not supposed to desire and want and have for yourself. Look down in the story, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. See, desire them and have your fill. That's how the story starts. You shall eat, you shall desire, and that is good. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In chapter 3, if you turn your eyes just down the page, as it were, you'll find the second time the word covet as a verb is used. And it's in the story that was just read to us. When the serpent comes in, crafty, Beast of the field that the Lord God had made and starts asking questions, questioning God's word. Look at verse 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be coveted to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and so suffering enters into the world. Do you see the contrast between Buddhism and Christianity just in this beginning story? Extinguish all desire. Desire is what leads to suffering. No. The Bible begins by telling us that you should desire good things that God made for you. But there are some things that he made that were not for you, and you should not covet them and seek after them and long for them. That, my friends, leads to suffering. That is the root of all sin and suffering in your life and in this world. That's the story of the Bible. Eve wanted more than just the food of the tree. She desired something that she could not have. She wanted to be equal with God. Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5 that the serpent is questioning God and says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. She's not just desiring the goodness of its fruit or its nourishment or its taste or its pleasure. She's desiring the temptation to be more like God than she already is. Because if we read in chapter 1, starting in verse 26 through 31, you'll find that God already made human beings, Adam and Eve, to be like God. But that wasn't enough. You see the discontentment that the serpent is entering into this world. You could be even more like God, have even more wisdom than what you currently have. You were made to reflect God and be like him, but now you you should be equal with him. She was not satisfied. She coveted. And that, my friends, is our definition of coveting this morning. Desiring something that does not belong to you. Desiring something that you were never meant to have. It is not wrong to have just general desires for things that you need, things that you want that God would bless you with, but when God doesn't bless you with them, and so therefore you weren't meant to have it at that time in that way, and you're still desiring, and it's an inordinate desire, and you start sinning to get those things, that's coveting. And the sins that led after the coveting were all fruits of that internal desire Listen to the 10th commandment once more. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet, period. No, it doesn't say that. The Bible does not say you shall not have desires for things. You shall not desire things that aren't yours. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Can you desire to have a house to live in and that be a good thing to care for your family? Absolutely. Absolutely. Should you get in your house, look at your neighbors, and be like, man, he's got a swimming pool, and it's bigger and nicer than mine, and our air conditioning's broken, and his is not. Oh, man, I'm so discontent with the house that God gave me. You see the difference. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servant, female servant, ox or donkey. If you're not getting the idea, how about this phrase? You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. It's pretty much a catch-all. Like, 
Basically, anything that's not yours, don't long for and covet those things. Don't be jealous or envious of them. The command is not to stop having desires. That's Buddhism. The command is to stop desiring the things that were never meant for you to have. You certainly were not meant to have the knowledge of good and evil and be equal with God. That was the first sin. Every coveting sin after that has been the longing for something that's not yours and you thinking that you know better than God that I should have that. Just like Eve in the garden, God has given us many good trees for us to enjoy. But how many of us are looking at that one tree and thinking to ourselves, if I only had you fill in the blank, if I only had a different spouse, if I only actually had a spouse, if I only had a family or a different family, a different house, a different job, so-and-so just went on that nice vacation. How come I never get to do that? Do you realize how much evil happens in your life and this world because you are not content with what God has already given you? We are just like Eve. We need to read the Ten Commandments in light of the story. The story is not to be read for us to look at. And even as Sam so well prayed, we look down on people in these stories. No, this story is to read us. We're to read ourselves in these stories. Are you letting that story do that to you this morning? Our foundational story as Christians is that we are idolaters. We desire things in this world that are not ours, and therefore we commit idolatry. We choose to put ourselves in God's place and determine what's best for us. That's what Eve did, and that's what we do every time we covet. In fact, when you go to the New Testament, Paul in Colossians chapter 3 is going to explicitly say coveting is in fact idolatry. Listen to this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Now start thinking for just a second. Didn't we already go over idolatry? That was the second commandment. Why is Paul saying that coveting is idolatry. I thought coveting was coveting. Isn't idolatry idolatry and coveting coveting? Here's one way to think about the Ten Commandments. As we close up this series, I want you to realize that there are bookends to the Ten Commandments. The first two commands in the imperative language are no gods, no idols. The last two commands are do not covet your neighbor's stuff, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Bookends. The first two commands and the last two commands of the Ten Commandments correspond with one another. The moment that you think you need your neighbor's stuff and you start being jealous and coveting it and inordinately desiring it, you are making yourself another god and you are worshiping an idol. So to covet is to commit idolatry. That's what Paul, I think, is trying to help us see. We want more. God is not enough. Christ is enough for me. Well, no, he's not. Look at how much you've coveted this last week. 
every time we covet, we're making idols out of whatever we're coveting. And we think we have to have it. We can't stop thinking about it. That thing becomes the master and we're the slave. Instead of Christ being our master, no other gods before me. Make no other idols and just submit to the God who has graciously given you so many good trees to eat from. You're just not supposed to eat from the tree that's not yours. There's so many unique things about this last commandment. So many peculiar things about it. It's the only commandment that's repeated twice. Did you notice that? Of great foundational importance, you shall have no gods before me. It doesn't say that twice, but it does say you shall not covet, and you shall not covet. If you examine other comparable laws and culture, especially around the ancient Near East, so when the Ten Commandments were given, compare that with the Canaanites, with the Babylonians, with the Egyptians, you will not find a single command in any of their constitutions or laws about coveting. How unique is it that in God's Ten Commandments that summarize all of his law, he includes a law that has Nothing to do with your external actions. Like, isn't it very peculiar? You start thinking more about this last commandment. And it started to get me thinking about this. If this command is one of the important summarizing book-ending commands to which we see all the other commands, and that's what I'm arguing here, Is it possible that you and I have thought wrongly about the Old and New Testament? I think I've been convicted of this. How many of you will confess that you often think that the Old Testament is about external rule-keeping and the New Testament is all about the heart? Any of you want to just say, yep, I have thought that, heard that, preached that, said that, read that somewhere in a Christian book? Does not the 10th commandment blow that out of the water? From the very beginning, the very first foundational sin was Eve's coveting. One of the Ten Commandments is to not covet, and it's matched up with the first two commandments. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, this is the way we talk. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, as he's on a mountain, just like Moses was, and he starts talking about the law, and he says, I'm not going to abolish the law, I'm going to fulfill the law. And then he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, and a lot of times, myself included, I will preach that by saying, okay, the Old Testament was about, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder. But the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's all primarily about your internal obedience that leads to external actions. And I've been rebuked this week. I feel like that's the wrong way to think about the Sermon on the Mount. D.A. Carson helps me out with that a little bit. Other scholars and books I was reading this week helped me with this. What if Jesus is not trying to tell you, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, and I now tell you a new commandment that you've never heard before, but what if he's taking the 10th commandment and says, don't even covet, don't even lust? That's, those words, by the way, are, are, are synonymous, especially in the Greek. Coveting and lust are parallels, synonyms. So it's as if Jesus says, but I tell you, don't covet your neighbor's wife. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't covet revenge. Let God take care of vengeance and don't be angry in your heart. 
My point is this. I think that the Old and New Testament, as we get the whole story put together, is telling us a unified theme. God is sovereignly demanding and caring about your heart, not just your external actions. And that was true both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why the summary of the law is love and love, heart things. And those summaries are found, guess what, in the Old Testament. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, the first four commands. And then love your neighbor. It's really all overflowing from a heart of love. You can't love your neighbor and covet their stuff or their personality or their good looks. Have you ever tried that? Somebody that you're extremely jealous of and try and have a loving relationship where you just love them. It doesn't work out so well. So we can't love our neighbor if we have envy and jealousy and coveting in our heart. Here's a quote. It is the commandment most at root of the core of our sin. This last and tenth commandment could be viewed as the interpreting clause of all the other ten commandments. It is not just the suitable conclusion to the ten commandments, but it should be viewed as the encapsulating of all the ten commandments. It was those kind of quotes that started getting me thinking. Maybe Jesus just knows the Ten Commandments better than we do, and he is coming as the authoritative word of God and says, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm not even giving you a new law. I'm telling you what the law was always meant to be. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's about your heart. And see what happens when you take coveting seriously? It means that you can't even lust after a woman. That's adultery already. It's not just about stealing It's about not looking at your neighbor's stuff and wishing that you had it. This is what I think is going on in the story that we had read to us earlier in the service. Remember the rich young ruler's story? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. Well, you have heard the commandments. Do you remember the commandments that were listed? Don't commit adultery, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Did you notice one was missing? You shall not covet. And then the young man turns back to Jesus and he says, I've kept all of them. I'm doing good. I've obeyed them. And Jesus says, one thing you've lacked. It's as if he's saying, you forgot commandment number 10. One thing you lack I have blessed you with so much riches. Doesn't the story say he has so much riches? So that you could be generous with them. And so those extraordinary amount of riches were not yours. Those were to be given generously. I blessed you so you could be a blessing. So I'm going to ask you now, sell all that you have and give it to the poor so that you know that those were not yours to begin with. You're just a steward. And the man goes home sad because he had great wealth. Coveting is sometimes when we look at our neighbor's stuff that doesn't belong to us, and sometimes coveting is when we look at our own stuff and we're not willing to let go of it. What if God is calling you today to think about what are some of the things that you need to just let go of and be a blessing to other people and generously help them? If you have a coveting heart, you're going to hold on too tight. And that's mine. Maybe he never meant for you to hold it on. I hope you're starting to see the significance of the Ten Commandments. 
the 10th commandment in particular. I want you to start feeling how close this hits to home. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a homework assignment starting right after this service. I would like you to consider over lunch or dinner today, if you're going to be with somebody here, or maybe even somebody you go home to, or maybe sometimes this week, to sit down with somebody and talk through three scripture passages that are related to coveting. I'm going to give them to you. I want you to jot them down. If you don't remember them, I will text you them, email it to you, put it on your Facebook, whatever we got to do to help you complete this homework assignment. Here we go. Scripture passage number one, Luke 12, 15. So imagine you're having a wonderful lunch together after church today, and somebody says, hey, let's talk a little bit about Luke 12, 15. Jesus says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care and be on guard against all kinds of covetousness because your life is not about stuff. And here's my question I think you should talk about over lunch based on this verse. Are you on guard? What protections are you thinking about to protect yourself and be alert to the fact that you might be greedy? Can I give you a confession? The number one confession that you never hear as a pastor, Pastor Phil, I have something to confess. Can we meet up? Oh, okay, sure. You know what commandments you hear? Adultery, stealing, lying, cheating. You never hear the 10th commandment. And this is not just me and my personal experience. I've heard this from Catholic priests that sit in confessional boxes. And I was just reading that this week. He said, in all my years, 30, 40 years of being a Catholic priest, no one ever said, I'm a coveter. I'm a greedy man or woman. Could it be possible that because you're not on guard as Jesus is commanding you to, that you may not know it, that you are a greedy person? So we should talk about this in discipling relationships. We should talk about this over lunch with Christian brothers and sisters. We should take care and be on guard like a soldier watching post. My soul is so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So prone to leave the God I love and be bombarded with images and advertisements and every time the TV and phone and everything you could imagine is telling you you need more. You're not satisfied. You don't have enough. This is the world we live in. So what protections are you doing to keep yourself free from coveting? That's question number one over lunch. Question number two. James chapter four, verses one and two. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Question over lunch. Ask each other this. In what ways is your greedy, jealous, covetous heart leading to other sins? It's exactly what this passage is telling us. It's not just that you covet, it's that that coveting then leads to quarrels and fights and murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. How many of you spend beyond your means and get into debt because of a coveting problem? So spending beyond your means and racking up credit card debt is sinful, wrong. Coveting is the root. In what ways is coveting leading to other sin? How many of us have stolen things? How many of us have been so jealous of what our other friends, brothers and sisters, family members have in God's blessing that when God's word commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice, we can't. You can't obey that command because I am only sulking in discontentment that God did not give me that marriage, that job, that promotion. Do you see? Coveting is a source that leads to all kinds of other sins. How many of us use drugs, sex, alcohol to deal with the depression and discontentment that is fueled by our coveting? Those external actions are further down the line. The discontentment, the feelings of inadequacy, all go back to a core of ingratitude and coveting heart. As you're on this passage of Scripture over lunch, one of the things you should make sure you're asking is that if somebody confesses, yeah, I've been really discontent with XYZ, you know, I really wanted this job and I didn't get it, I didn't get the promotion, you should make sure you ask, did you even pray and ask for it? Did you hear what James 4 said? You do not have because you do not ask. God didn't give it to you because you were trying to get it by yourself instead of letting God sovereignly bless you with it. Secondly, it says, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Well, yeah, I have prayed. So then ask the follow-up question. What do you think you would do if God gave it to you? How would you use that blessing? Maybe that's why you haven't got it yet. Question number three, passage number three. So we've Luke 12, 15, James 4, 1 through 3, and Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. It's the word for dung. It's trash. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything that he has, his name, his fame, his reputation, his accolades, everything that he just listed in Philippians 3. You can read the whole chapter. I mean, you want to go for it for lunch today. You can read more than the verses I'm giving you, okay? There's freedom here. Christ has set you free. Read the whole chapter and you'll see he's just given a whole list of things that he should be so proud about in his earthly life. And he says, but I count it all loss. It's nothing. It's trash. It's a pile of manure compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus, my Lord. So here's your question at lunch. How does what you're coveting compare with the beauty and glory of knowing Jesus Christ? This, my friends, is leading us to the key, the cure of coveting, which is our second point. 
We've looked at coveting and the curse that's been brought on all of us. Now let's consider its cure. When you meet together and somebody confesses that they have a greedy, coveting heart, you must preach the good news to this person. This should be the normal habit of our church life together. If we're going to be a transformed community, it's because we have learned the practice of preaching the good news to one another after sincerely listening to confessions and not getting real judgmental or the, oh my goodness, I can't believe you do that. But listening to someone and saying, man, I'm really glad you shared that with me. And throughout that conversation, throughout those questions, you eventually conclude by telling them that there's hope. That the story does not end with God just giving his law to sinful people and them not being able to obey it because of their sin in their heart. So let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 7 and let's see how Paul, the apostle, takes the story of the Bible and owns it. That's what I want you to do. I want you to own this story. Let it read you and read your life. So just by way of introduction of this chapter, we are on page 943 in the Black Bibles, Romans chapter 7, and we are diving into what is called one of the most difficult, confusing, complex, you name it, chapters. So I'm going to quickly just summarize it and clear up all the confusion about this. Here's how the chapter starts. Look at verses 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law. So notice quickly, he's talking to brothers in the Jewish tradition who know the law of the Old Testament well. They know their Ten Commandments. And he says, don't you know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And then he uses an illustration. He says, it's kind of like a married woman that's bound to the law of the covenant with her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, then she can be released from the law of marriage and then get remarried, is the idea. Verse 3, accordingly, she'd be called an adulteress if the husband is still alive and then she goes and marries another man. That's adultery, so don't do that. We looked at that a few weeks back. But look at verse 3. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So what's that illustration for? Look at the next verse, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So this is how this ties in. You were once covenanted together as a Jewish Israelite person to the law of Moses. It was a binding covenant just like a marriage covenant. And until death do you part, you are stuck to the Ten Commandments and all the commands that come after them. You know, no eating any crabs, no eating any shrimp, no eating any kosher, non-kosher things, no bacon, no pig. You see what I'm saying? Like all the laws, you're tied to all of that, Sabbath keeping, you name it, sacrificial system. But then Jesus comes onto the scene. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, now you have died to the law, which means you are now free. You're free from all of its commands and regulations. So look at verse four. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear good fruit for God. Verse 5 says, For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
Notice the way he talks about the law in a negative way. Verse 5, aroused by the law. Our sin sees the law, don't covet. And it says, but I want to covet, and I'm going to do it anyway. And that's what we do. And so Paul doesn't just tell them this. He owns it, and he puts himself in this story. And look at what he says in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Because he's talking so negatively about the law. Is he saying that the law is bad? That it was a bad marriage partner? No, no, this was a faithful, good law. And so that's why he says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. There's our commandment. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came. Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, is the commands, the Ten Commandments, are they good commands? Are they righteous commands? Should we try and strive to obey them because they summarize all of God's moral law? That's what we've been arguing through this sermon series. Yes, 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 yes. Problem. The marriage between God's law and sinners is a bad marriage. It's not working out. When the sinners hear the law, they decide, you know, I didn't even know I wasn't supposed to do that. Now I'm going to do it. It's kind of like the kids that say, hey, don't do this. And they're like, oh, now I've got an idea. I'm going to go do that. That's that's what he's saying here. And that's not just his story. That's our story. That's the story of Israel. That's what I've been trying to tell you this whole series. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, don't commit adultery. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's make a golden calf. I said, keep the Sabbath day. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's build, uh, let's pick up sticks and break the Sabbath. And on and on it goes. There's these stories every time the the law is given. And so Paul is reading his Old Testament and he's saying, it's almost as if the law is producing more sinning. Because the more laws are all, the more sinners are going to just keep disobeying them. And so he's trying to figure out, is the law bad? No, the law is good. So what's the solution? You need a new marriage partner. See, the law and Israel were married together. And what the story of the Bible is, is that Jesus comes in and says, I am the new marriage partner. And that old marriage, the law, it's dead. It died, like the husband that died. The husband's dead. You need a new husband and get remarried. So get married to Jesus. Do you see the picture here? This is the cure. This is the cure because when we get married to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit and he writes the very law of the Ten Commandments on our hearts and he gives us affection and love for God and love for our neighbor. So this is not about you trying to like, okay, let me try harder. No, love Jesus by getting close to him and know him and be married to him because he will change your heart. And that's how the story ends in terms of the law. God gives his Holy Spirit, transforms people's lives, and then when he returns, he makes everything new. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. This sums it all up. I think this is his grand conclusion to all the arguments that I've been giving you about the law. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're married to a law. 
But the law is the spirit of life that transforms, not the, spirit, not the law that brings death, which is the old covenant law. Now, this is, this is, I think, as clear as it could be. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So just pause right there. Remember what he said. Is the law good? Yes. Is it right? Is his commands good and holy and righteous? Yes. What's the problem with the marriage? The flesh It's weakened. This marriage is weakened because of the sinful flesh. And so Jesus comes and God does through Jesus what the law could not do, which is change the other spouse. You got the law and you've got Israel and the law could not change Israel. But when Jesus comes, he does change his people. So he did do it through Jesus, and it says it's already been done. So therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now. And watch the way the verse 3 ends. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Hallelujah. Amen. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. You have a new marriage partner. It is not the old law. God never has this expectation for us as Christians that here's the law and you just need to try and do it. No, your marriage partner is Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on your behalf. He did it for you in order that that requirement would be met and then you could walk according to the Spirit. That's what we live in now. That's the story. And we're in the middle of the days where our hearts are being transformed and they're still coveting and sin. That's why we need to meet together and talk over lunch and work out some of these sins and preach the gospel to each other and have that transform our hearts. And then one day we'll be completely made new. Isn't that a good story? What if it was true? And what if it was your story? Can you say like Paul does, I, and own it? Like that's my story. That's what it means to be a Christian. So it means to walk in the fellowship of this church and the Holy Spirit. I want to conclude with one quote. It's from C.S. Lewis, from Mere Christianity. I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire... That does not prove that the universe is a fraud. It probably proves that the earthly pleasures were never meant to make satisfaction for that desire, only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing, the substance. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only just a copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others do the same. Do you have a desire in you that you know all the worldly desires could never satisfy? You were made for something more. So let's press on as a church and spur each other on, even today at lunch. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we want to thank you for giving us this amazing story, not just a set of laws, but a story of salvation and redemption, of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that you communicate to us through narrative, that we can own this story as our own, that we are just like Adam and Eve in the garden, that we too have coveted and longed for things that are not ours, never should have been ours. We want to thank you, God, that you have, in fact, given us many trees to enjoy good fruits. How kind have you been to give us this church and all the people in it? Many of us have jobs. Many of us have clothes and food, and we have lunches to eat later today. God, you have been so good. So I'm praying now that you would help us to be a content people, A people that is so overwhelmed with gratitude day after day at how much you have done, not just with earthly pleasures like C.S. Lewis is trying to tell us. Those are just pointing, pointing to a greater heaven and earth. Lord, I pray that we would be so thankful that you have given us a gift that we could never repay, the gift of the cross of Jesus Christ dying for us, becoming sin for us. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.